0: Now, as we, this evening, come to again to the book of Daniel, I will not be able to refresh your minds much about the last study, except just to remind you that the key to the book of Daniel, we discovered, to be very simply and everywhere apparent within the book, the sovereignty of God. Remember that we mentioned to you from... Uh, this um, uh, diagram or chart that I put on the uh, blackboard, that when you you recast the book of Daniel in a chronological setting, you suddenly discover some very, very interesting facts. And one of the things we've got to remember with the book of Daniel, and one fact at least upon which all scholars agree, is that it is divided clearly into two. The first six chapters are historical narrative, and the last six are prophetic. Though that twofold division everyone sees quite clearly, you can hardly mistake it. It's so absolutely clear. And you will remember that I said the last time the key to both sections, to both divisions of the book of Daniel is the sovereignty of God, whether it is in the fiery ordeals or the trials of Daniel and the three, in the first, as recorded in the first six chapters, or whether it is in world history, the whole course of Gentile history as recorded in the last six chapters, in both we discover that beyond it all and above it all there is the Most High, who has everything in his hands and is well able uh, to deliver his own and to realize his own purpose and secure his own objective. Perhaps the most encouraging thing, the most comforting thing, about the book of Daniel, lies just within that fact. It is a book with a modern message. It has a message for the 20th century, uh, as well as for every other century since it was written. Every time at which, in which it seems that man has been overwhelmingly uh, in control of things, when evil seems to be on top and occupying the throne and in charge... Of everything, it's it's the the book of Daniel has got the message that uh, the Lord Himself can use those things. Not only can He overrule them, but He can use those things to uh, the advantage and the increase of His own. And so we've discovered by. Uh, recasting the book of Daniel in this chronological, uh, into its chronological sequence, we suddenly discover that each trial, each test that Daniel and the three went through led them to, uh, ad- into an advance. It always had this, the one outcome of promotion. And not only was it promotion, but it led them to, to understanding, to seeing something and uh, I think we have got to take very real note of that because that is essentially the message of this book it is the sovereignty of the Lord and um, to move on now this evening to fresh ground I want to say a few more things about the key to the book of Daniel before we actually look at the outline of the book both sections as we can see from this chart are remarkably linked together They are remarkably linked together. And what Daniel went through in the first six chapters leads him in every instance into what he understood and what he saw as he recorded it in the last six. You must not think, because of the way the book is set, that Daniel traversed the first six chapters and then saw all the last six chapters. As you can see from the chart here, they are amazingly woven together. What he went through, as recorded in the first six chapters, led him into these, into his understanding of the purpose of God and of the, of the, the way in which God was going to effect his purpose. <coughs> and similarly, uh, and transversely, what Daniel saw and understood to be the purpose of God became the dynamic and the urgency of his service uh, in the first six chapters. The two were linked together, one leading to the other. In the one you find that all he went through only led him to see more deeply and more clearly as to what was happening. It's a most interesting fact that at the beginning of his life, when he's a young man of 22, uh, he sees the whole of human history depicted as a man. Of course, it was a dream given to Nebuchadnezzar. But it says he saw it as well. When Daniel went to sleep that night after praying, he also dreamed the same dream. That's how he was able to go and tell Nebuchadnezzar what he'd dreamt. He dreamed it as well. As a young man of 22, he saw human history in the symbol of a man. But when he was an old man of 84... He saw human history. It was the same vision in principle, but he saw the human history depicted by four wild and ferocious beasts. You see, there was a deepening of understanding. Daniel was all the time getting slowly as he lived older and went on with the Lord, more and more to the heart of everything, seeing more and more clearly into the reality of things, that that which lies behind uh, the visible uh, and the external. And so, you see, what he suffered only led him into a deeper understanding of the Lord and of his ways and of his purpose. It gave the Lord the opportunity of of opening his eyes to show him something. And then what he saw became the urgency of his prayer life and of his testimony. Uh, Daniel stands out for these two things, service in prayer and in testimony and that is the point i want to make before we leave this whole matter of the key to daniel we have said it's the sovereignty of the lord but i want to say this daniel is the last of the three preparatory ministries for recovery in the old testament to jeremiah ezekiel daniel he is the termination or the the climax of these three great preparatory ministries And the aspect he presents is service. You will remember that Jeremiah presented the aspect of character, spiritual character, the kind of character God wants if he's going to recover things. Uh, Ezekiel revealed to us uh, a ministry of definition, which is an essential part of such a movement. And then uh, Daniel presents (coughs) to us the true character of service. What really is service? Now, this is just the point. It is service under and linked to the sovereignty of God. It is the kind of service which is so holy of the Lord that the Lord is, uh, is all the time allowing it to get into situations allowing it to come into circumstances which will be its, naturally speaking, will be its destruction and its end, in order that it might exist upon the basis of of supernatural, divine protection and sustenance and preservation. That is the kind of service that is here. It is not service for God. It is the service of God. It is something so holy of God that it seems to draw out the very antagonism that is in the world and the antagonism of Satan himself. So that the whole story, the career of this service on earth is a story all the time of attempts to waylay it, attempts to destroy it, attempts somehow to strangle it, to compromise it, and so to uh, nullify it. No, this service is under and linked to the sovereignty of God. In God's sovereignty, the time had come for the return to take place, and Daniel was to be the instrument. Perhaps there is nothing more thrilling for those of us who have been following these studies and we've said such a lot about recovery and such a lot about about, about the return to the land, how God slowly and surely builds up to it, how he prepares for it, how he works toward it. I suppose there's something very thrilling for those of us who know something of the background to come at last to the one who is appointed of God to be the actual instrument of effecting the return. And it may not seem to be so apparent on a superficial reading of the book of Daniel, uh, but once we begin to look into it and notice it all, and see it all in perspective, we suddenly discover that the whole book throbs with this message, that here at last there is someone who is the final step of God before the return takes place. Uh, Here the, the, the one who is Actually instrumental. Of course we can say Jeremiah was instrumental but he had long ago gone to be with the Lord. We can say Ezekiel was uh, instrumental but as far as we know he also had passed off uh, the scene and anyway he certainly wasn't in court circles and uh, occupying high influential powerful government positions but here now we've got the man who was to live right through it all and to actually see his people, return to the promised land. Daniel then reveals to us what it means to be such an instrument. He reveals to us the nature and the character of such service. He reveals to us the conflict, the satanic antagonism involved in such service. And he reveals to us the need in such service to be always in a clear-cut position with the Lord at any given point, so that the sovereignty of God might be fused with a frail, weak vessel. For after all, Daniel in himself was nothing. Oh, he may have been a clever man. He may have been an intelligent man. So were many of the other wise men, and they would have met their end as well if it hadn't been for the intervention of God as recorded in these first six chapters of Daniel. It's not a question of his intelligence. It's not a question of even his genius, if so be (coughs) that he had natural genius. The, The key to Daniel is that he, from the beginning, He kept himself in such a clear-cut position with the Lord that the sovereignty of God was able to be fused into his frail being. And his frail being became absolutely identified with the sovereignty of God. Oh, that doesn't mean to say that Daniel hadn't got faults. They may not be recorded, but I have no doubt that he had many faults, many laps. Uh, many shortcomings in, in one way or another. But as far as the Lord went, and this is the beautiful thing, as far as the Lord went, uh, his attitude to the Lord, his spirit toward the Lord was perfect. He kept himself out of compromise and I think that, that you will all realize what a miracle that was. Living in the atmosphere, living in the surroundings that he did, what an absolute miracle it was that from when he was a young teenager introduced into Nebuchadnezzar's educational scheme right the way through government service, living in the court and in such circles, he kept himself absolutely unspotted, uncompromised from beginning to end. If the enemy could have only compromised Daniel, somewhere along the line, the whole effectiveness of his life Uh, would have uh, been jeopardised. It's very difficult for me to be able to put it in really clear, lucid terms, but I I wish you could just, I wish I was able to draw for you the picture, as it should be drawn, even if, if in a dramatic way, to be able to show you how Daniel's effectiveness literally hung on a thread at two or three points. Right at the very beginning, when the whole question of food came up, why it was just a thread, which many of us would have said was being silly, to jeopardise whole, his whole career on the question of, of a little bit of food that had got some blood mixed up in it, or hadn't been properly drained, or was perhaps one of the creatures that shouldn't be eaten. Why? Or farther on, when it came to prayer, why well, Daniel, you don't want to jeopardise the whole of your usefulness and effectiveness for for on this question of whether you should pray or not. The Lord, you can pray in your heart. You don't have to do it outwardly. So why don't you just uh, keep your windows shut, your shutters shut in the windows, and, and uh, do as we've been told, as it were, in the New Testament. Uh, go and pray in your closet uh, in privacy. and uh, Don't let anyone see and so on. But you see, Daniel knew much better than that. Even if he didn't understand fully what it was leading to, He knew that if he compromised even there, the effectiveness of his testimony, the effectiveness of his prayer life was finished. And the interesting thing is this, that every step led to the end of his life. Of course, course, every step should lead to the end of all our lives. But every step in Daniel's life led to the end of his life. And the interesting point is this, it was when he was an old man of 90, that the whole point of his life was and if there had been a breakdown anywhere along those long years from when he was a boy of 19 or 17 uh, 16 when he entered into that educational scheme, if he had only broken down right back there or anywhere along the line, the point to which the Lord was seeking to, to, to get him would not have been reached and the effectiveness of his life would have been jeopardized. Now that is the whole point of Daniel. He reveals to us service under and linked to the sovereignty of God. And we discover here that such service is twofold, as I believe I have mentioned. It consists of prayer on the one side and testimony on the other side. It is inward and outward. The inward part of service consists of prayer, an absolute travail in the secret place. The outward aspect of it is testimony, a bold, uncompromising testimony before the whole kingdom, before men, before things visible and things invisible. It doesn't matter what it was, uh, you will find that. Then you will find that even in the purely apocalyptic part of the book of Daniel, the last six chapters, you still have this twofold ministry. It is the most interesting fact when you look at this chart that the visions that Daniel had about those wild beasts, about the ram and the he-goat and about many other things were only given to him in many ways, uh, practically at any rate for his day, that he might be an absolutely uncompromising testimony. There was Daniel in the midst of amazing luxury, of amazing power, of one of the greatest empires the world had known. And yet at the heart of it, occupying a very big position. He was able unerringly and uncompromisingly to testify to the fact uh, that the Lord himself was sovereign. He'd seen something. He knew that all these empires were going to come to an end. Uh, He knew that there, there was a time destined for them to pass away. And another would take its place. And then that would pass away and another would take its place. And so it would go on until finally the kingdom of the Lord Jesus would be brought in forever. Daniel, you see, existed as a testimony to that fact. He couldn't be shaken by all the power and arrogance and might of either the Babylonian or the Persian Empire. He just lived in the midst of it as a testimony part of it, involved in it, holding high position in it, and yet an, a testimony, outwardly, uh, to the Lord himself. All those visions, all that is purely apocalyptic, is, still reveals to us the service of Daniel, both in prayer and in um, uh, testimony. Uh, one of the loveliest things I found about Daniel is his humility. When he sees something, he's not afraid to ask someone what it all means. He doesn't sit there struck dumb like some of us, and never daring to ask anyone, what what do these things mean? Daniel says to any angel that's nearby, please, will you tell me, what does this mean? And he always gets the answer. He always gets the answer. He doesn't just sit there. You see, it's prayer. It's prayer, that's all it was. He just asked. He was asking, please reveal this to me. I don't understand it. Many of us can't understand the visions of Daniel because we don't pray uh, about it. We need to pray just as he did. I'm very thankful that Daniel didn't understand his visions and so they troubled his head until he asked the Lord to reveal them. And then he got the key to his own, the visions uh, that were given to him. Daniel then prepared the ground by prayer and by testimony for the return. But I want to ask one or two questions about this. Did he only prepare the ground? Did he only prepare the ground? How much did Daniel uh, influence directly those that returned? Of course, he lived by, overlived their return by two years at least. His last recorded vision was two years after they'd gone back. But how much did he practically, materially effect the return? I have a strong conviction that Daniel, humanly speaking, was as responsible, if not more responsible in some ways, than Cyrus himself for the return of the people of God to the land. I shall point that out as we go along. But it's a conviction with me. I believe that he not only prepared the ground by prayer and testimony for the return, but in the end he had been so faithful to the Lord that the Lord was able to put him into such a position that he was able materially to effect the return. How much, for instance, did he affect, uh, how much did he affect or influence psalms? Uh, that wonderful decree of Cyrus which has always troubled uh, uh, scholars because they say how did an ungodly heathen man um, uh, put into such scriptural, biblical language a state decree? Could it have been Daniel in conjunction with Cyrus who actually uh, created as it were uh, the decree the state decree which was the uh, the signal for the return uh, to the land Well, there's a lot of questions we can ask about Daniel along that line. How much was he influential in a material way uh, in uh, effecting the return to the land? Certainly we know from Daniel chapter 9 that he was responsible in a spiritual way for the return. In prayer, in prayer, he won the battle. If you read Daniel 9, you'll find that it was Daniel who was responsible for the return behind the scenes. But I think that it was not only behind the scenes that he won the battle. After he'd won the battle in prayer behind the scenes, I believe then the Lord took him out into those, that in, <clears throat> from that influential position of his in the government to materially affect return. So then, here is Daniel's function to be a witness under and to the sovereign kingship of God and his Christ, and by prayer to effect and realise his sovereign purpose in his day. He became, he didn't just see the the sovereignty of God down through the centuries, he wasn't just one of those mystic seers who sits wrapped up in what he sees for future generations. Daniel was also practically... Uh, involved in the realization of that part of God's sovereign purpose which related to his own day and generation. That's most important. It's not just the sovereignty of God for the future, but it was the sovereignty of God in his own day. And I might just say one other thing before we leave the key. It is that in the light of the volumes that have been written upon the details of Daniel's prophecies... Uh, and visions and so on, I think we need continually to keep in mind the, the, the key, the essential message of Daniel. I have brought out here six volumes. I could have brought out more like 15 volumes if I would wanted to, but I brought out six volumes. I'm not going to quote them, don't worry. I just put them here so that you can come up afterwards and look at them. There are six volumes there and every single one of them has an entirely different interpretation of the whole Book of Death. Every single one of them has a view which cannot be in any way reconciled with the other. There is the idea of commentary, there's Dumlow's commentary, there's Pember, there's Guinness, there's Lang and there's Morrow. All famous godly scholars, not one of them, has agreed with the other really basically uh, upon the interpretation of the book of Daniel. Most of them, except perhaps the IVF uh, commentary, are wrapped up in the details of the predictions of Daniel. What are the 70 weeks? When do they begin? When do they end? What about the ten toes of the image? Where are a lot of five in the Western Empire, uh, five in the Eastern Empire, the two divisions of the Roman Empire? Who are they? When will they reappear? Where is Antichrist? Who is Antichrist? Will he come from Greece? Will he come from Persia? Will he come from Armenia? Will he come from the Caucasus? Where will the Antichrist come from? Where will he arise? All these details and volumes written upon them. Um, And I have also another book in there which I haven't brought out, also by dear Grattan Guinness who was a godly man. Um, with a great chart, world history, written in 1887, in which in one correct point he did thing. he took it right down to 1917 when he, d- he predicted that the Jews would go back, which of course they did. He died long before then. But there are many other dates also which he gave, which I'm afraid are wildly out uh, of the mark. And so we could go on. Volumes and volumes have been written uh, upon the details of Daniel's visions and prophecies. And I am afraid, although I hardly dare say so in, in the presence almost of such godly and great men, I am afraid that many, in many cases the essential message of Daniel is almost completely lost under the weight of uh, detail uh, and uh, analysis. The whole, the whole point of Daniel, which is to set forth the sovereignty of Both in the present and in the future, uh, is lost sight of in trying to identify um, little things, and in some cases, things that are not there clearly, but only by inference. Well, I hope that that doesn't upset some people who might fondly cherish uh, some of those dear and beloved uh, men who have written so voluminously um, upon. Uh, this subject but I think what I have to say could be at any rate listened to with great helpfulness to all if you will only when you enter this field of study and I'm sure that you're we're all young and if the Lord tarry we shall probably have to take up this book not publicly but perhaps privately and personally more, and you will read books about it. Well, can you always remember this? When doing so, always keep in mind the essential message of the book of Daniel. Don't let it get lost in the terrific controversies and evidence for this or for that, for this view, for that view, for this system of prophecy, for that system of prophecy, for this interpretation or that interpretation. Otherwise, you will have a far bigger headache than ever Daniel had when he saw the vision. Now, what about the outline of the book? Now, there's one point I would like to say before we even look at an outline, which is very simple. Um, And it is this. When Daniel saw these visions, what did he understand? We fully know what others understand by them. We have it in their books. But what did Daniel understand by the visions that he saw? For after all, that's the most important thing of all. Did he see all that many expositors have found within the visions he saw? Did he or did he not? It is, I think, necessary to remember that we have two things in these visions. Now, if you forget everything else about this evening, and there's a great probability that you will, will you please always remember this point. In visions, in any apocalyptic visions, an apocalypse means prediction of the future in symbol and figure, as over against prophecy, which is the foretelling of the mind of God. In all of apocalyptic visions, uh, you we have always to remember that they set forth Two things, and I believe it's because of a misunderstanding over this that we have so many different interpretations of uh, apocalyptic uh, ministry. Uh, The book of Revelation, of course, is another classic example of dozens of different varying views that cannot find any common uh, basis. What are the two things? Firstly, we have the character or nature, in principle, of of things represented or symbolized. Let me put it another way. Their spiritual meaning is manifested in the symbol used. Let me put it another way. The heart of the matter is condensed into a symbolic or figurative form. All right. When Daniel sees something, the Lord wants to show to him the inner character of human history. How does he reveal it to him? He reveals it to him by four wild, ferocious, carnivorous beasts. That's how he reveals it to him. He wants to uh, 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 express to Daniel the inner character of human history. So Daniel sees the whole of Gentile history in the form of those four beasts. There are many other things that we could say. That's just an illustration. The first thing always to bear in mind is that these visions or these uh, symbols or figures represent... uh, They represent or they symbolize, firstly, the spiritual character of the thing. Now, I do believe that if we could only get hold of that, an awful lot of trouble would be saved. Because there are people who are absolutely wrapped up with the details. And really, the essential thing is the spiritual meaning that is conveyed. The spiritual character which is conveyed. The second thing is this, that in these apocalyptic visions or symbols, figures, we have actual prediction, even down to detail. Actual prediction, even down to detail. But we ought never to forget that the first is more important than the second. Far more important than the actual detail is the character which these symbols uh, convey and represent. Now, the outline of Daniel is quite simple, being divided into two, as I've already said, Daniel 1 to 6 and Daniel 7 to 12. The first division is subdivided into 6 and the second into 4. The main two-fold division is, I've put it on the other side of this board, so if you want to copy it, very simple indeed I haven't put the subdivisions down because they are rather long and difficult but the two divisions are firstly the sovereignty of God experienced in the service of the present from Daniel 1 to 6 And the second is the sovereignty of God seen over the nations in world history. Now let's consider this a little more fully. First, we'll look at the first division. The sovereignty of God experienced in the service of the present. One point I would like to make before we look at the first chapter why have we so ex- so extensive an historical section in this book? Of course, in some of the other prophecies, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, we have got some historical incidents, some historical narrative. But no book, no prophetical book, is half narrative. And yet half of the book of Daniel is historical narrative. Now, why is that? The reason is simple. If we examine that chart that I have now uh, turned over, which I expect some of you have copied, if you examine that very carefully, it reveals to us the steps by which Daniel is brought slowly uh, but, but surely to the place in the sovereignty of God, where he is not only spiritually instrumental in effecting the return, but materially so. By Daniel chapter 6, he occupies the most influential and powerful position in the whole empire, and all is set for the return. This is one of the, one of the most remarkable things about the book of Daniel, that when you come to chapter 6, you leave Daniel in a higher position, than anyone else except the king himself. He has been raised slowly but surely, step by step, from position to position until he even occupies now a position above the first three viceroys of the empire. of Three viceroys and 120 satraps or governors. Uh, he now, at the very end, is not even just one of three viceroys on equal basis. He is set above That is the real key to why there is so much historical narrative in the book of Daniel. The Holy Spirit is seeking to impress upon us the fact uh, that the sovereignty of God is very much related to the present, and he wants us to see the steps by which he can lead us in service to him, uh, to the point where we become instrumental in God's purpose, not just spectators but instrumental. Very well, now let's look at that first division. It's subdivided into six. The first, uh, very, very happily for us, uh, the subdivisions are our chapters. One of the few instances where uh, the chapter divisions are correct and good. And um, the first chapter speaks to us of preparation for a life of service. If you'd like to look at Daniel chapter 1, you'll get some idea of that. Daniel chapter 1. It is a kind of introduction to the whole book. Now, there are three things I should like to say very briefly about this chapter. I've entitled it Preparation for a Life of Service, but I cannot overestimate or over- uh, not only overestimate its value to the rest of the book, but overemphasize or overaccentuate the need to understand the first chapter of Daniel. You see, the first thing I see in this uh, um, chapter, if you look from verse 1 to verse 7, are the, the, is the situation and the circumstances that surround Daniel. The situation, the circumstances, the atmosphere into which Daniel, as a boy of 16, perhaps younger, perhaps a little older, certainly not very much older, possibly uh, a good deal younger, uh, is introduced. That is the opening of this book. Torn away from land, torn away from his own background, torn away from his own people, torn away from his father and mother, and brothers and sisters, and placed absolutely alone with three others, in this atmosphere an atmosphere which is wholly contrary to spiritual character the last place you and i would have placed daniel if we wanted him if we had wanted him to occupy the spiritual position that he occupied would have been such a situation such an uh, we uh, such an atmosphere we would have put him in a bible college we might have put him into a very nice healthy good uh, congregation of saintly people but to put him in an atmosphere where all was vice where all was opulence where all was luxury where all was autocratic power in the hands of very few uh, would have not seemed to us to have been the best place to train them but the holy spirit brings him as a young teenager into such an atmosphere with three others they've been torn away from everything the whole idea of Nebuchadnezzar's educational scheme was to keep these boys, um, as uh, at least to keep them speaking the language of their origin, but to absolutely uh, make them Babylonian. To somehow or other um, make them essentially part of his own government, but the link between him and... And his captive peoples, and the different provinces uh, of his empire. That was the idea. Well, that's the that's the kind of atmosphere that the that they're brought into. And then, in, from verse eight until verse uh, thirteen, you have, um, or verse sixteen, you have compromise rejected. When these three are presented with the, with the temptation to compromise, they utterly reject it out of hand. It seems to us to be a very small matter uh, to get worried about a little bit of food, when after all so much else of value could depend upon it. But at the very beginning, they are not going to get themselves into any compromised position with the Lord. They are not going to in any way become somehow spotted uh, by, by the world though they are in this atmosphere they are going to remain absolutely separate one of the, mo- the most remarkable things about Daniel and the three and we must ask ourselves who taught them who was behind them where did the influence come how did they know these things for we know that the last days of Jerusalem were not particularly godly it says something for someone somewhere who had somehow schooled these boys in an understanding of the Lord's purpose and of the Lord's mind and of the Lord's law. When at last they're torn away and placed in, they would prefer to die. They would prefer to be uh, wiped out, to be annihilated, rather uh, than compromise on the smallest point. And you know the result. Why it led to everything. Because they refuse to compromise, the Lord honors them. And the result is that the sovereignty of God from that day is linked up with that four. Those four frail, weak, human, young men have now been fused by their action to the sovereignty of God. And the sovereignty of God has somehow become fused with them. From now on, they are linked with the sovereignty of God. I think that perhaps is the most uh, uh, comforting uh, part of this first chapter. Everything comes out of this temptation, this, this temptation of a compromise. Would they actually uh, let go of this? If they had, I wonder what the story would be. A very, very different story indeed from the one we have. But they didn't. They were faithful on this point and that faithfulness unbeknown to them led them, because it could easily have led them to death but it led them in actual fact into a knowledge and an experience for the rest of their days of the sovereignty of God with them, for them, and in them and then you will notice too that it led to service service for the present and service for the future for Daniel not only served his own generation but he has served us as well and a, there are peculiarly few of God's children who have not only served their own generation, but served other generations too. This little act on the part of Daniel has led him into an eternal service. As long as time shall last, Daniel will be found to be ministered to the people of God. Out of a little question of food and the temptation to compromise on it, and the way that it was utterly rejected, whatever the cost, has come not only the sovereignty of God linked with these four, but has come a service which was not only to their own generation, but was to ours as well. That is the first chapter, preparation for a life of service. What do we find in the second chapter? The second subdivision of this first of these first six chapters, I have entitled, Nebuchadnezzar shown the sovereignty of God in world history. Nebuchadnezzar shown the sovereignty of God in world history. Well, you know the story, I hope. It was an impossible situation. Nebuchadnezzar made it impossible. He dreamt a dream. But he also was very suspicious of all his wise men who lived, of course, on his bounty and were paid well. He was very suspicious of them because as he himself says, they wanted him to tell them the dream so that they could just say nice things to him, so he said, until the times change." In other words, if you got stabbed in the back or wiped out or something else, all the wise men would very happily uh, follow the next, uh, the successor, and would support that successor with all kinds of thoughts and ideas and revelations, visions, etc., etc. So Nebuchadnezzar said, "I'm not going to tell you the dream, since you're also wonderful and since you have understanding of invisible, intangible things. You tell me what the dream is, as well as interpret." It. This presented an impossible situation for the whole court. And, of course, Daniel and the others were also uh, involved in the impossibility of it uh, as well. But you know the story. The four got down on their knees and prayed. And the answer was that Daniel went to bed that night and he dreamed the same dream. It says he had the vision of the night and saw exactly what Nebuchadnezzar had seen. So with haste he went to the captain of Nebuchadnezzar's royal guard and was taken in to Nebuchadnezzar, for Nebuch- Nebuchadnezzar had favoured Daniel already because he'd found him, as the scripture says, ten times better than any of the other uh, wise men. Um, he was taken in to him and <coughs> he was allowed to interpret the dream. Now what is the dream? What does this dream represent? It represents world history from Nebuchadnezzar to the end, for we have an interpretation of this dream. Daniel interprets it for us, and we have quite a clear, at least in principle, a clear interpretation of this dream. We find it is a human image uh, that, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar saw. That's the first thing. i just mention two or three facts about it. We know that it is world history depicted in this vision from Nebuchadnezzar right down to the end of uh, world history. What are some of the features about this vision? The first is that it's a human image. Now, an image is an imitation of something. And that is one of the first things that it is meant to convey to us. Human history is really uh, a substitute for what God intended. It is the, uh, the very highest that man can get to, the greatest that he can do, the most noble, That he can produce is, after all, in its final analysis, only a very poor imitation of what God originally intended. It is just like an image. It is lifeless. (coughs) Lifeless, cold. It can't move. It's something which is not what it was intended. Here we have an image of a man. See, the vision that was represented was not a living, animate man, but it was something that was humanly created, an image of something else, something that was by its very nature a substitute, an imitation. Then another thing you must uh, note very clearly is that it represents four world empires. We have that, of course, in the interpretation. We can't possibly disagree on that, for we are told that that's what it represents. Four world empires. And the four world empires are quite clear. They follow one upon another. Babylon, followed by Medo-Persia, followed by Greece, followed by Rome. Now, the interesting thing is this, that Medo-Persia, and Greece are almost uh, passed over in silence. But in the interpretation, it is the fourth empire, the Roman empire, upon which um, the Lord dwells when he gives the interpretation (coughs) to uh, Nebuchadnezzar. (coughs) We must remember when we look actually at this uh, um, vision We want to see clearly (coughs) that the the whole of world history is comprehended by these four world empires. We today, according to scripture anyway, are but an extension of the Roman Empire. Uh, When you see the vision here, as recorded here, you will find that it speaks of the legs of iron. Uh, then becoming mixed with clay. Some believe it's earthenware, some believe it's just ordinary clay. But the whole point is a mixture of two things which really don't um, hold together. They They won't really fuse. They're both there, the iron putting something into the clay and the clay putting something, as it were, into the iron. The clay is weakening the iron, the iron is strengthening the clay, but the two things will not mix. The whole story of our uh, modern-day, present-day civilization is contained uh, within the image that Nebuchadnezzar saw. From the strength of Rome, gradually the whole thing has, whilst in some ways seemingly become weaker and therefore less, uh, less outwardly less evil, is nevertheless um, still part of a whole system uh, which is anti-God. Uh, we have got a few more things to say about that image in a moment. But it is very interesting. Of course, some of the um, interpretations of the image do uh, go beyond, I think, the realm of reason. Uh, they try to follow it down into the ten toes, and they, uh, although, of course, the ten toes are there. Uh, but they tried to make out the ten-toes. Five are to be found in the, in the eastern division of the Roman Empire, five to be found in the western division of the Roman Empire, and there are some who believe that in the end, before the final throes of world history, there will be a revival of the, of the old Roman Empire in a modern, united European state. That's been taught. I was brought up on it when I was first saved. But whether that is so or not, the great point to remember is this that the Holy Spirit dwells upon the legs and above all the feet of this image. It represents for us human history. And the time when the whole thing is destroyed by the coming of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus is the last point. When it becomes weak, when it becomes corrupt, when it becomes divided, for, you see, at the beginning the Roman Empire was absolutely a unit. Gradually it has broken up into a, a two-fold uh, main division. <coughs> and then, according to this, it gradually has broken up into all kinds of petty kingdoms that have tried to unite by intermarriage. Well, oh, Of course, the whole story of Europe is the story of, of royal families trying to unite their countries by marriage. All the time, by the seed of men, these petty kingdoms have somehow or other tried to form alliances, make uh, united fronts, uh, fuse countries, but it has never succeeded. Oh, it's so interesting that the Kaiser of the First World War uh, was, of course, uh, one of the sons uh, of Victor. Uh, it didn't didn't stop the First World War. Uh, the 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 seeking to unify nations has not actually brought about a unity at all. Now all this is contained within the image. Some may not see that, and I belong to a, I trust a much more reasonable school of interpretation than some. Um, I believe that you can most definitely say that all that is found within what Nebuchadnezzar saw. You, you imagine what he saw. He suddenly saw a colossal image. And as he looked, he saw that there were different metals in the image. The head was fine gold. The arms and the breast were silver. The thigh and the stomach was brass. The legs were iron. And then when he looked down at the feet... He saw that the toes and the feet were a mixture of clay, or earthenware, and the iron, and the two were not fuse. so that the last part, the last phase of the uh, Roman Empire would be one of constitutional weakness. Instead of it being one united empire, it would give rise slowly and surely, first to a twofold division, and then beyond the twofold d- division, to the rise of many petty kingdoms, which would seek to somehow unite, but would never really, properly um, uh, succeed uh, in bringing about a unity. Now, later on, and this is one of the feature of Daniel's visions, when next we look at the the last part of Daniel, we shall discover that uh, in these visions, each one takes a point of the previous and expands it. So we shall discover that the last throes of um, uh, this empire, or world history as we know it, will be the unifying of some uh, of the state. However, we must leave that for a moment. Now, another point to to remember about uh, this image is that all the ingredients, gold, silver, uh, brass, are there at the end when it's destroyed. Now, that's the most interesting thing. They're all there at the end when they're destroyed. In fact, the Babylonian Empire has long since passed away. The Persian Empire has long since passed away. And so has the Greek. Uh, Why does the scripture say that when the stone falls, it destroys all, because the whole point is this that the last stage of Gentile world history e is in actual fact the consummation of the other four the whole the all four are found in the last part, in other words, what the scripture says, whether it can actually be carried out fully and completely I haven't made a, a, a close study of this myself um, I'd like to. Um, what the scripture says is that our civilizations, we know it here in this country as the result of, these, of the uh, evolutionary sequence of these four uh, empires. Well, of course, I can tell you this, that we owe nothing to ancient, uh, the ancient Chinese uh, civilization, nor to the uh, less old Japanese civilization, nor to the exceedingly old uh, Indian civilization. I don't know whether we owe very much to the Egyptian, but we do owe quite an amount to both Babylon and Persia and above all to Greece. You see, Persia owed a lot to Babylon, Greece owed a lot to Persia, Rome owed a lot to Greece, we owe an awful lot to Rome. It's all an extension, so that the last part of Gentile world history, you will find all the ingredients of the former. Uh, empires and civilizations gathered up in their last uh, uh, form, their consulate form. Then we must mark this that the four different metals used gold, silver, brass iron and a mixture of clay uh, and iron we must mark those. On the one hand you will note a deterioration from gold to iron but on the other hand you will note an advance or betterment, because iron is stronger than gold. There's a paradox straight away in world history that on the one side there has been a deterioration. On the other side there has been a betterment, if you can call it an betterment. It's best to say an advance. Um, Most have interpreted this in the realm of government. The Babylonian government was autocratic. And actually, God's conception of human government is autocratic. It's not democratic, it's autocratic. If you can get the perfect man, you will have a perfect government. But since there is no perfect man, you will never get a perfect government of any kind. And it is true to say, as G. H. Lang has pointed out, that the tyranny of the people in so-called democracy in some countries is far worse in the tyranny of one man. Whether that can be actually substantiated, I don't know. But certainly it is true uh, that uh, uh, God's form of government, uh, his uh, ideal, is autocratic. When the Lord Jesus comes back to reign, it will be an autocratic reign in the hands of one man, uh, the Lord himself. But when we come to the Persian uh, uh, Empire, there is a subtle and yet distinct change in the form of government. The government became a semi-autocratic, aristocratic government. The actual government, the power and authority of the uh, king was hedged around by the nobles, so that you find, as you do in this very book of Daniel, that when he does something, the nobles won't let him uh, undo it. It's been passed, it's been sealed, and so on. Uh, It is something that is according to the law of the Medes and the Persians. Uh, It cannot be changed. In other words, they have now started to hedge autocratic government with something else, to safeguard it, as it when you come to the Greek Empire, you have another change. You have uh, an aristocratic form of government uh, that is militaristic. It's very interesting that the Greek, Greek Empire, uh, from at least Alexander uh, and his successors, to Antiochus at any rate, is uh, one of milita- military nobles being in charge. When you come to Rome, of course, you have what is supposed to be the first democracy. Caesars were elected by the people, at least in name. Uh, In actual fact, uh, that is, they really had almost all power in their hands. You see, a change. But the interesting, perhaps one of the most interesting points of all, is that the Roman form of government has finally given rise, through the process of history here in Europe, to what we call constitutional government and this is represented in the image by clay it is the uh, form of government where the people have the same and you still have the iron seeking to unite with the clay and the clay with the iron, and the two just can't meet, you've got the two things always together, G. H. Lange and point out a very interesting fact that in nearly every crisis our form of government changes uh, if not outwardly, certainly from uh, democratic to autocratic. In nearly every crisis, it in the end is found to be in the hands of one person who really influences nearly everything. Well, there you are. Whatever you feel about it, um, that is the picture, that is the vision that Daniel saw. And I want just—we uh, must finish now. I just want to point out the difference between the stone and the image. What is the difference between the stone and the image? It's very interesting. For the stone is cut out without human hands. It is divinely produced. The image is humanly created. And over against human history and its kingdoms, you have the kingdom of God. And in the vision, Nebuchadnezzar saw this stone, this small stone, suddenly cut out from the mountain without any human hand touching it and hurled down from the top of the mountain, down at this great colossal limit. It doesn't go for the head, it doesn't go for the breast, it doesn't go for the stomach, it doesn't go for the legs. It is hurled at the clay. And when it smashes the feet, the whole thing comes down in rubble, and then the winds come and blow the whole thing away, so that a speck remains. Then the miracle. The stone grows and grows and grows, till it fills the whole earth, becoming a great mountain, filling the whole earth. What is the meaning of it? Well, it's clear to all, surely. The stone is Christ's. Christ. And whether we, we think of the stone as the coming of the Lord Jesus into this world, as the one who is the chief cornerstone, that elect, that stone, headstone, elect and precious in God's sight. Or whether we think of it, more rightly, I'm sure, as the, the coming again of the Lord Jesus with his own, for this speaks not just of the Lord but Christ and his own, the kingdom of God. Whose sovereignty shall never be given to another? It shall come at the end of world history. The last, final extensions of Roman, uh, of the Roman Empire, Roman civilization, will see the coming of the Lord, and the whole thing will be brought to the dust and ended. Well, that's the vision that Daniel saw. Later, I trust that we shall be able to see his other visions and see how they correspond with this first vision and how they develop it and how they give us even greater understanding of what he saw when he was only 22 (coughs) years of age but you see here he saw us for whether we see it at present or not uh, we're all included uh, in this vision that was given uh, some 25 centuries ago we're all in And how much nearer we are to the end, only God knows. Except that we have seen, uh, I think ourselves, quite a lot of human history uh, recorded, even in our short lives. Well, the most encouraging thing of all is that there will come a point at which the Lord Jesus, who has initiated, brought in the kingdom of God, is going to bring it out. It's come already in It's come already in space. why well, the Lord Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is at hand when he was here on earth. He spoke everywhere of the gospel of the kingdom. And one of the last signs of the coming of the kingdom of God outwardly in manifested power and glory <clears throat> will be the preaching of the gospel of this kingdom in every place for a testimony. Then the end shall come, said the Lord Jesus. Well, we leave it like that this evening. Um, it's going to come in outward power and outward glory when the Lord Jesus comes back again. Uh, And that will be the end of what we know as world history, with all its strange paradoxes and contradictions, its its noble aspirations and its bestial practices. It will all in the finish be ended, and it shall become the kingdom of our God and His life. The end of that, of course, was that Daniel saw was advanced, that's all. He became governor of Babylon, and the other three became governors as well, of the prophets. That was the end of that, of that vision. It was a tremendous promotion for them all. It was a great advance. They took a tremendous step forward. Well, I hope the Lord will, has helped us a little this evening. This book is not an easy book at all, but I believe we must spend a little time on it because... Otherwise, we'll never understand some of the other prophecies, and particularly the uh, book of Revelation. <clears throat>